Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. Today is April twelfth, twenty twenty-three, and we are talking with Tao Wang in Hong Kong, Chief China Economist of UBS Investment Bank. Uh, I understand in the market, uh, you know, there was、uh, headlines about UBS and Credit Suisse, but I think for people who are,、uh, you know, mostly working and researching, the impact is probably、uh, not that direct. So today we're very happy to have Tao here to talk about、uh, what she's been doing and what was she's been, you know, what's her view on China. Hi, Tao.、Uh, thank you for coming. Hi, Li Qing. Hi, you recently published a book.、Uh, tell us, you know, why you want to write the book and what is it about? Thank you, Li Qian, for inviting me. It's my pleasure to have this chance to talk to you.、Um, yes, thank you for mentioning my book.、Um, my book is titled "Making Sense of China's Economy," and it was published by Rutledge out of London last month. Um, you can order from Rutledge.com or Amazon.、Um, with this book, I think I wanted to share what I've learned about China's economy over three decades with those who may be new to analyzing China or interested in a new take、um, with both the Chinese and Western perspective.、Um, as a China economist in the financial industry, I've been asked every possible questions from everywhere in the world. Some questions do not change.、Um, for example, what was the root of China's rapid growth in the last four decades? How fast can China grow in the future? How big is the property bubble? Will the country be able to avoid a debt or financial crisis? Can China become more innovative in the future? Can it escape the middle income trap? And so on.、Um, more recently, of course, there are questions about. Deglobalization, about、uh, domestic regulations, and so on.、Um, China has so far defied many predictions of doom. Would continue to do so. So these are some of the questions I try to answer with the book. Um. Well, so I think some of the the questions I I talk about、um, include I think、uh, the history of reform over the、uh, last few decades,、um, how policies, how economic policies are uh, made, um, and also talk about you know the the property、uh, market issues, bubble or no bubble,、um, and、uh, also you know financial、um, uh, sector issues including uh, debt. Um, so what I do is to address these questions. Instead of you know, of course, I give some、uh, answers in the book,、um, but I think my main purpose is to, is to actually sort through really layers of facts and history and you know contradictions.、Um, so, for example, I think you know China is a developing country still.、Uh, I know some people think China is already a developed country, but its per capita GDP、uh, is only a fraction of the U.S. level. Um, and also, the economy has been transitioning from central planning to market, so it still has a lot of、uh, both features.、Um, and so, it, it you know, China is is under a single party rule, but local governments are actually very important and powerful in making policy decisions.、Um, and and China has very big urban and rural 
uh, divide uh, you know, in terms of income, entitlements, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I go through this and uh, basically explain that it's sometimes not very easy to use a simple worldview or economic model to explain uh, China's economic trajectory. Um, so I, I explain basically how China, uh, how China's economic uh, landscape and policies have evolved over the last four decades, and you know what what potentially lays ahead. Could you um, comment a little bit on the innovation angle, uh, because you know obviously <clears throat> U.S. has put so many uh, export controls and sanctions on Chinese companies. Uh, what's you know what's your general uh, like a framework when you think about China's innovation? You mentioned this is a topic in, in your book. I don't specifically talk about innovation. I do talk about um, you know China's potential growth um, and you know what lays ahead uh, in the book. But uh, yes, I think I do uh, mention these aspects of um, you know decoupling pressure and the technology restrictions that U.S. has imposed on China's access. Um, so I think on one hand, at the very uh, high end, these restrictions obviously will have a negative impact. Uh, on China. Uh, China, of course, will increase its R&D spending, research and development spending, um, and put more resources on uh, these uh, semiconductors and uh, other advanced technology areas. And Chinese policies have then reacted by promoting more self-reliance um, and uh, more spending on innovation. But nevertheless, I think these restrictions uh, means that, that China's potential growth, especially with productivity, gains at the cutting edge uh, will be negatively affected and uh, you know overall long-term growth may be lower because of that but at the same time though I think uh, you know uh, about moving up the tech value chain China still uh, is at a very low stage relatively speaking so there's a lot of catching up to do uh, applying mature technologies, using automation and digital technology in more areas, I think there's still a lot of space for China to catch up in those areas. Thank you. I think uh, also you mentioned that you know China is still an uh, emerging market uh, developing country. I think people um, sometimes they forget that at the per capita level, China is still you know, it's significantly lower than the U.S. Uh, per capita. So there is a lot of catch up in terms of uh, economic growth as well. Obviously, China's uh, total economy is, you know, getting close to the U.S. That sometimes, you know, make people forget. Um, I personally, I remember, you know, if I go visit uh my family in the village in, in Zhejiang, I will be flying to Shanghai. It will look like New York, you know, from the airport. And then as you gradually um, take the bus or in those days, sometimes a uh, train, then you, you know, you go into the village. There's some families who doesn't even, you know, have indoor plumbing in the, in the 1990s. Uh, so I think uh, uh, that is uh, sometimes get lost. Um, you also mentioned in the book that um, local government debt, um, for people who are not as familiar about China's system, what should be 
how should they think about China? Like currently, because the Chinese local government is having, uh, you know, money shortfall because of the real estate uh, land sale is uh, not as much as before, and real estate is uh, not going to be the area of growth uh, because President Xi doesn't, you know, want wants to say President Xi specifically, you know, di- directives that houses are not for speculation. So in terms of looking at China's local government debt, like what's the framework to think about and what, what's your current uh, read on that situation? Right. I think, uh, yes, China's local government finance is, is quite challenged. I think at the overall level, uh, if you want to think about China's total government debt, both local and central government put together, and including some of these uh, local government financing vehicle, basically uh, government entities set up as a company, but really affiliated with the government and doing financing and investment for the government. If you put all this together, total debt as a share of GDP is still less than 90% of GDP, which is lower than many um, developed countries. Um, so it doesn't look like a much problem. But however, a lot of the debt are at local levels and the local government finance uh, is not very strong in some areas. It's very uneven. Some local governments are, are very poor um, and they relied on uh, selling land to property developers to finance a lot of the project and a lot uh, pay a lot of the debt. And now with the property sector uh, in deep uh, adjustment, um, so indeed, I think in the short term, they will uh, some of the local government debt may face payment issues. Um, but I think at the same time, though, there are ways to address them. Uh, for example, uh, the, there will be restructuring of some of the debt um, because a lot of the debt are owned to state-owned banks. So banks, I think, will be pressured to restructure some of the debt. There may be um, you know, some defaults at the bond market uh, by these local financing vehicles. There will not be default of municipal bonds, and there's no mechanism for that. Um, but also, I think local governments will be pressured to sell some of their assets. They do have assets, including you know, shares of companies listed, shares not listed, um, and buildings, and, and, and so on and so forth, uh, to help pay that. In the long term, of course, local governments will just have less resources to do investment, um, which is not a bad thing because, you know, then that means the corporate, the private sector will do more of investment in the economy. Thank you. Um, if in trying to understand China's economy, um, <clears throat> is the data quality an issue? Like what kinds of data you and your team use are the most? Well, I think there's always questions about China's data and in, in some areas data are not good. For example, labor and wage statistics are probably especially poor, um, not timely and the coverage not very good. Uh, and then uh, especially fixed investment data um, are not the same as the fixed investment we understand because it includes a lot of asset transactions, land costs, um, and uh, also uh, the, these data sometimes go through rounds of adjustment uh, because when the National Statistics Bureau um, detect there, uh, there could be notable inflations by local governments with the data, then they make adjustment. But they don't often tell us how they make the adjustment. So we have to sort through uh, difficult data 
But in general, though, I think data um, over the years have become more and more available. Uh, and we also supplement the official data with uh, private and industrial level data, uh, data published by, you know, industry associations, uh, by, you know, third party um, uh, uh, companies. And we also, UBS, use our own evidence lab surveys um, to supplement that data. Well, data we use the most, I think we have the monthly official data on things like industrial production, retail sales, investment, property sales, property starts, and uh, also, of course, monetary and uh, credit data uh, published by the central bank. We have trade, export and import data from customs, which we can verify by, you know, data from trading partner countries. Um, we also look at uh, high frequency data like uh, passenger traffic at railways, at subways, um, and also freight data, daily steel production by you know, steel companies and property sales and so on and so forth. Thank you. Um, indeed, I think uh, for people who are not familiar, I think the number one data not to use uh, and put a huge discount is the investment, particularly fixed asset investment data, because that's the <clears throat> most subject to manipulation and uh, misdefinition. Um, but the other ones like retail sales uh, can can be collaborated from uh, private data and also the most of the financial data, uh, you know, credit spreads, those are pretty transparent because China now is uh, have a relatively transparent financial system. You mentioned the UBS uh, evidence lab. Can you tell us a little bit like who do you survey? What kind of data do you survey and how, how they help you? Sure. So uh, we have a, a team of experts and they uh, engage uh, with um, uh, people on the ground. And so we have uh, many kinds of survey. The surveys that I use very often uh, includes three kinds. One is consumer survey. So uh, we, we send out the surveys to over 3000 people uh, in about 100 cities, you know, both tier one, tier two, tier three cities um, and ask them about their you know, income, their purchase and their intention, uh, what kind of things they buy and so on. And then another is a housing purchase survey because property market is very important. Um, similarly, also the requests are sent to over 3000 people uh, across different tiers of cities and different age groups asking them, you know, uh, do they plan to buy homes? What kind of homes? What's, you know, what, what, um, uh, what types of mortgage and, and so on. So very detailed. And the third one I use a lot is uh, what we call CFO survey. So these requests are sent to about 500 companies uh, across China, including Chinese company, private and state-owned, but also foreign companies, asking them about you know the, um, their industrial outlook, uh, their you know intention to shift supply chain or not, uh, and things like that. So it's been very useful for us uh, to find these uh, information from the grounds. Of course, we also have um, an army of uh, equity analysts who have detailed knowledge about certain sectors and so on. So we also draw the, from their expertise to supplement the macro data. Thank you. Um, in terms of China's economy, what are the top three things uh, you should you think that people should focus on like in both short term and long term? 
Right. Um, yeah. So in the short term, right now, um, you know, we are looking at China's recovery post COVID. Uh, so there are a few things. One is that we should look at uh, property developments, uh, which has been really a key driver of domestic economy, especially industrial demand. Um, and the second thing is also would look at uh, consumption recovery after COVID. Um, normally, consumption to you know we do not pay much attention to because it tends to be quite stable and move in line with income and, and GDP and so on. Uh, but right now, uh, then it is very important for us to understand consumer uh, sentiment, how fast consumption is recovering or not. Um, and third thing is we we look look at exports. Uh, which tracks external demand. Um, so normally, the third thing we would also, you know, look at uh, policy stance, whether uh, fiscal or monetary policy are supportive or tightening, which is often reflected in credit growth or credit impulse, whether that's picking up, um, and that will co corroborate with, you know, infrastructure investment picking up or not. These two often go hand in hand. So over the longer term. Um, so there are a few things. I think the important thing is understanding the demographic shifts um, and policies to offset that negative effect. Um, so, for example, the policies like birth policy, retirement age, uh, retirement policy, HUCO reform, uh, and uh, so on. Um, you know, to what extent this could um, offset some of the negative effect of a shrinking working age population and, and labor force. Uh, the second important thing is um, really the, uh, the way China is moving up the value chain in the manufacturing sector and the areas of investment, for example, you know, automation or greener development. And the third uh, important uh, factor is, is look at external shock. Uh, for example, some decoupling pressures, you know, higher tariffs or not, restrictions of access to technology, as you mentioned. So these three areas, I think, are very important factors determining uh, long-term growth for China. In terms of uh, <clears throat> the second factors that you mentioned about uh, deeper uh, industry upgrades and uh, how how to measure them? Like uh, what, what kind of data or what kind of uh, uh, ways to track, you know, how, how much progress China is making in uh, upgrading its industrial, uh, I mean, manufacturing, uh, industrial, you know, sectors, different sectors? Right. Um, I think there are ways to systematically look at them. And so um, I think the uh, WTO and the World Bank has joined report on, you know, um, uh, global value chain shifts um, they, that looked at China. Uh, one can also look at through trade data um, to, by looking at basically the value added of China in certain you know, industries. Uh, has that been increasing or not? And um, are they in you know, more advanced uh, sectors? You know, is China producing more in more advanced industries or not? Um, so these, of course, look at long-term trends, and that's very clear. China has been moving up the value chain chain. Um, so that's a systematic way of, of looking at it. I think for us, um, you know, of course, there are other corroborating evidence, for example, um, the number of patents uh, China has been uh, applying or getting granted, um, the R&D spending, research and development spending, 
um, and uh, uh, of course also you know share China's share in in certain industries, um, for example, China's share in uh, machinery, equipment, electronics have been rising, and its share in lower end, for example, uh, clothing and shoes and toys and those kind of sectors have been declining in global trade. Um, so these are some of the ways uh, to look at it. Thank you. That's really、uh, helpful, and I myself, I think,、uh, definitely will want to check it out because the technology competition is the new area of competition between U.S. and China.、Uh, it's moving away from the trade war, so-called. You know, now it's much more about、uh, tech war. If people, I I don't like the word war, but you know, that's the norm people are being giving.、Um, in the longer run, given The issues and challenges, and I kind of joke about like if you know China and U.S. is under so much、uh, media spotlights, right? Looks like it has so many challenges and issues,、um, or other countries probably you know don't have this kind of a scrutiny.、Um, how fast can China's economy grow? Like say in the next. Five to ten years, and how do you approach these kind of you know longer term forecasts? Sure,、um, we think that China's、uh, long term growth is obvious is slowing because of the challenges that、uh, you mentioned, also because of the、uh, aging population and、uh, you know lots of issues. But still, we expect China's average growth to be between four and four and a half percent in this decade. Um, and、uh, in the beginning, like this year, next year, growth is going to be above five、um, percent.、Uh, but then it, it starts to slow、um, and going from around five percent, then to maybe around three and a half percent by twenty thirty.、Uh, but on average, you know, growth will be still four four and a half percent. It will be much lower than the seven percent in the previous decade, the ten percent the decade before. But、um, you know, China's economy is now US seventeen, eighteen trillion dollars.、Uh, this kind of growth means China will still be the biggest contributor to global growth. About you know more than thirty percent of global growth will come from China.、Uh, Long term growth, you know, the way we we look at it is we look at. Um, really, from supply side, and, and what are the factors、uh, contributing to potential growth? So, you know, labor resources, capital accumulation, productivity gains,、um, not from you know consumption, investment, exports, that kind of angle.、Um, so, you know. We, as I mentioned, on on that side, on the labor, we have working age population shrinking, continue to shrink.、Um, so that's a challenge. But at the same time, China's retirement age, the actual retirement age, is only fifty four, and there are still people in the rural area that can be transferred out. So at this decade, I think the number of people、um, coming to the labor force、um, is not. Going to be much of a problem.、Uh, then on the um, uh, on the uh, capital side, and there's you know property、um, uh, bubble and excess capacity to absorb in the next few years. That's a bit negative. But then we just talked about you know China still has a lot of potential to catch up because it is at a relatively low level of、uh, development.、Um, so you know investing in mature technologies and non-sensitive technologies. More broadly, to the industrial and services sector, you know, automation, digitize,、uh, and the process in smart manufacturing services. 
there's a lot of investment um, uh, to be had to gain uh, productivity. Uh, also more, you know, greener development, investment in, in greener technology and decarbonization. There's a lot of room for continued capital accumulation. So it's from these angles we, we conduct our, you know, long-term estimate. Thank you. And actually, um, I also mentioned uh, to people um, that I feel the demographics angle is a little bit over, um, like over-dramatized, yeah. overplayed, exactly. Because first, you know, any crisis of demographics is, is if a government have promised much, you know, pensions. And, you know, typical Chinese doesn't get much promise of uh, government welfare, you know. So uh, the idea that, you know, you're going to have a pension crisis or healthcare crisis, that's only possible if there's any promise of those benefits, right? The promise of those benefits are pretty low. And the secondly, I think China uh, generally is on a much more personal responsibility kind of uh, society. So, you know the, the the population, the supply of the labor. Even though even though people will say the official retirement age is you know fifty five, uh, there are you know people will like my even my own family. They will find a job even after they retire, and and sometimes the company was will will rehire. In Chinese, it's called the fanping. So a lot of times the nominal retirement age. Is, is really just nominal. If you actually look at the labor supply and you know, it, you will continue to see, see that. So I feel this demographic thing is so overplayed, obviously, you know, because now India is gonna be the largest uh, uh, with the largest population and people were kind of saying, but if you look at this way, you know, it, India's median age, um, 32, 33, that's about, uh, China's median age about um, 2010, and at that time, China's uh, GDP is def is is probably you know depends on the the way you calculate it. It's is probably twice or at least 50 percent higher than India's. So is if if people are worried about China's demographics, then people should worry about India even more because they are still so much poorer per, per capita wise. Uh, even though their their median age now is is you know lower than China, but for for the given uh, level of uh, income, they are actually behind if you compare apples and apples. So anyway, it's my personal opinion. Um, for people in the financial markets, the focus is often on the short term forecast. Uh, what is your forecast for uh, 2023 and 2024, uh, the gross domestic uh, product, uh, gross GDP growth? I think people are interested in because things are getting back to normal. You know, this can serve a little bit of a baseline uh, for, for the next few years. And what the key drivers for the short term growth that, you know, you mentioned a little already, but well, let's, you know, go a little bit deeper on this. Sure. Um, yeah, so in the short term, our forecast is uh, GDP growth at 5.4% this year and 5.2% next year. 
Um, so indeed, they are going to be driven mainly by a normalization of economic activities and post-COVID recovery. So the biggest uh, contributor to growth is going to be consumption, um, and not because consumption will be super strong, but because consumption was really hit uh, quite hard during the pandemic years with um, with the lockdowns, you know, mobility restrictions, and and so on and so forth. Um, so as as the economy opens and things normalize, uh, people will, so a lot of offline um, shops and restaurants and, you know, offline tourism sites and so on, those will be open. More people will get their job back, especially migrant workers, and their income will start to grow and that will uh, help uh, support their consumption. Uh, there are also, of course, a group of people who are more well off um, that they had savings during the pandemic time and now they can release those pent up demand um, and especially go on, you know, buy high end products and go travel and, and so on. Um, so that's uh, that's one uh, key driver. Uh, there's no income subsidy from the government, unlike in the U.S. So I think Chinese consumption recovery will not be so sudden and so strong. Um, and the second uh, factor is really uh, stabilizing the stabilization of the property sector. Uh, the property sector has gone through a very deep uh, adjustment, a deep uh, downward you know, correction in the last couple of years. Um, it's brought by policy tightening, but also fundamentals, you know, coming weaker, um, demand for, for housing become weaker, uh, and also COVID. And so now COVID is over, policy has become supportive. We expect that, uh, you know, property sales and property construction will rebound, um, not to very high levels at all, but still it's going to be much better than um, the second half of last year. So it's really about um, no longer such a negative drag on, on the economy. So those are the two important um, positive factors. Well, you know, exports is going to be negative um, because of a global demand, you know, U.S. economy weakening and, and so on. Um, so uh, that recovery, I think, is not just this year, but also next year. Um, so that's how we see growth um, uh, trajectory moving. In terms of property, I've been a little bit on the negative side, mainly because even though in February there were many positive um, uh, property headlines and March seemed to be cooling down. And one thing I've felt that the reason the the property investment uh, coming back will be weaker is at least the way I based on my thesis is that before, you know, many Chinese buy it as an investment for property. And they were worried, you know, if they don't buy it today, the price will be running from away from them. But now, you know, the price uh, is is not going to be, you know, having these kind of a huge um, increase and before because President Xi uh, really discouraged the speculation of property. So do you feel that in the property that it, it is, you know, sure people still will, will buy houses for, for consumption purpose, but do you think people will be much less likely to buy property as part of their investment? Well, I think in my uh, 20 years of covering uh, China's economy uh, and 
and especially for the financial industry, one thing I learned is never underestimate Chinese people's desire to buy property. <laughs> so um, I, I think you're right that that probably those people who uh, buy property because they just you know just for investment because they think property price will continue to go up and up. Um, I think they will become more cautious, and I'm not sure how much they are back to the market. But there is also a group of people who you know thought property price were too high and they couldn't afford it, and now the mortgage rates have come down and uh, down payment has come down. Purchase restrictions are largely gone outside of uh, tier one cities, uh, so uh, people can afford them uh, better. And so I think these group of people would come back and. And they know the policy have turned and the economy is recovering, they better catch this chance. Um, so in, in terms of property, you know, uh, bearish or, uh, or bullish, I think depends on your time horizon. Uh, I'm bearish on the long term. I think we're not getting back to the 2020-21 peak level of um, construction or sales. Uh, but then compared to the second half of last year, when housing starts is less than half of the 2020 uh, second half level, and when sales is only 60%, um, there's definitely over correction. So there is um, definitely room for um, uh, uh, growth. So I think data in the first three months, um, so far we have seen actually have come in much stronger than I had expected. I expected a rebound, but uh, the rebound has come in um, faster and stronger. For this year, we still expect total sales and stars to be you know, mildly down from last year. Um, but I think at the, at the current rate, it may have potentially a bit more upside. Thank you. That's um, really, uh, I think, an area people are paying very close attention because in the short run, uh, it's it's really property and whether there are other areas of economic growth for China, particularly export is not going to be the main driver. Uh, do you base the short-term forecast mainly on models or use discretion and adjustments? And how important is uh, interactions with government and companies in enhancing your understanding of the Chinese economy? Uh, well, our short-term forecast is quite a bit uh, model-driven. Uh, for example, you know, consumption is driven by income growth mainly, and exports depends on external demand, especially from developed markets. But we do need to make uh, judgments and adjustment. Um, so, you know, on the consumption side, the release of excess saving depends quite a bit on consumer sentiment. Uh, and uh, so that's a judgment call. And then overall investment strength depends on government policy support, which also, uh, you know, we may have to make a judgment on how supportive government policy is, um, especially since not everything is in the budget and uh, not everything that the government does is in the budget. Um, it is you know, very important to understand what the real economic uh, real economy actors like government, households and corporate sectors are doing or likely to do beyond the macro data uh, we look at. Um, so we monitor government policy announcements. Uh, we participate in their consultation with the private sector, try to understand what their key concerns and key thinkings are. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, we benefit a lot from our colleagues on equity research who get information from um, on the ground at company level. And then we also, um, you know, do uh, surveys, company and uh, consumer surveys to understand, you know, what's going on as well. 
when you interact uh, with the government, like what kind of institutions uh, do you usually interact with them? Well, so these are, you know, the general uh, macro policy institutions, right? The central bank, the regulators, and and, and uh, you know the uh, NDRC. These kind of they they tend to reach out to to private sector quite often. Yeah. Thank you. Those are really helpful um, for people who you know want to read your book. It's available uh, on the. In Amazon and also from publishers website for people who want to know more about your team's research uh, where can they go and find out well um, so our team's research UBS investment bank research is um, provided to only institutional investors who are UBS clients it's not open to public in general um, but people you know who are our clients can reach out to their UBS sales or uh, contacts to get access uh, we do also post some uh, interesting research on UBS research um, public sites like LinkedIn or uh, social media platforms. Um, I also have a column with Caixin Media uh, that, that's also available in English. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, for our listeners, the podcast is a available through several uh, platforms, uh, Apple, SoundCloud, directly from Wisdom Tree website. Uh, we also promote uh, the podcast on LinkedIn and Twitter. I joined Twitter uh, you know, recently. Uh, it's been more than a year. Uh, it's the most time-consuming thing I've ever done. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, you can reach us to you know, reach to us uh, if you have any questions. And thank you, Tao, and I look forward to uh, meeting you this summer. I'll be traveling to China, so hopefully we will have uh, deeper conversations. Thank you.